You're listening to Film School, broadcasting every Tuesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time at KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, and on the web at KUCI.org slash Film School. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. Winner of the 2007 Sundance Film Festival Audience Award, the film Here and Now documents filmmaker Irene Taylor Brodsky's parents' complex decision to leave their world of silence and undergo surgery to get a cochlear implant, the only operation of its kind that can restore hearing. With us today is writer and director Irene Taylor Brodsky, who financed the film entirely by herself and with the help of friends, including the popular Portland-based band Pink Martini Irene Taylor Brodsky, welcome to Film School. Thanks a lot. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Are you up in uh, Portland? Actually, I'm on the shores of Lake Ontario right now where the film takes place. Oh, really? Well, how yeah. nice. Oh, those are beautiful uh, shots uh, there. I, I really enjoyed that. I mean, just the shots of the lake itself. Mom and dad are here, and oh, so we're just, uh, I'm on vacation. Oh, and I'm, good. I don't have to film anymore every time I come here, so that's oh. nice. Yeah. yeah. Did, did they ever get uh, weary of that uh, experience? You know, they never asked me to turn the camera off, and I think that might sound surprising, but uh, really, it's because when we first set out to do the film, I asked them a lot of questions, and I really, I really impressed upon them how annoying the camera would become. Uh-huh. Well, I've done this before, and they've seen me working, but they've never had to be at the other end of the camera, so I was really warning them a lot about that. So we agreed that. If we did it, we would we would really do it no holds barred. I think there were a couple of times when they probably wished the camera wasn't around, and I could tell by looking at their face, and I know yeah. them very well, but they understood that even in difficult moments, if we were really going to document the experience, we had to just see the whole experience, warts and all. Well, you certainly caught them in some vulnerable times in their life. Were you doing the camera work on the film? I did the camera work along with a woman named Crofton Dyack, who is also based out of Portland. That really started out because I couldn't film the surgery myself because I'm a family member, uh-huh. so they wouldn't let me into the OR. And so I knew from the get-go I would need someone to work with me on it. The problem was I didn't have any money to pay anyone to work with me on it. So this was an endeavor I was going to do on my own, and I didn't expect to drag anyone into it with me. But she started with me for the surgery, and it worked so well to have a second person there, not just logistically, but, you know, my parents talked to her in a different way than they talked to me. And I think that the intimacy we were trying to get in the film, we get, but at the same time, it's important that my parents sometimes are talking to someone who has no idea what they're going through and no idea about their life and their history. And sometimes when they would talk to me, it was a little too familiar. Mm -hmm. And so I think that talking to Crofton was helpful because then Crofton is more like you, like any other viewer. My parents had to explain everything a little more or go back in history a little bit more and tell a little bit more about themselves in a more articulate way than they did with me. It was helpful to have that, actually. Have some more detail on what they were doing, I guess. Yeah, now, yeah. Did you intend to film the surgery yourself? I, I think if they had let me, I probably would have. Uh-huh. Um, when I was considering doing the film, I talked with a ENT surgeon in 
Portland, Oregon, where I live, and he said, come on and see one of these surgeries so that you can just look at this and know what to expect. And so I really went into it with my eyes wide open. I don't know that it would have been easy to film it, but I filmed surgeries before as a cinematographer and gone into places as a director that are surgical situations, so I was used to that. But these and are your parents. <laughs> yeah, but it's my parents. But I never had the chance to make that decision because mm-hmm. the hospital made it for me. Right. How tough was it to talk your parents into this enterprise? Well, we never talked about it. We corresponded by email, which okay. is the primary way that we communicate, actually, when we you know live far apart. We can't talk on the phone together, so it was an email conversation. I asked them what they thought of it, and they didn't write me back for a week. I should rephrase that. They wrote me back, but they talked about everything except for the question I had asked them. And so I thought maybe they didn't want to do it and they were just avoiding me. But finally, a week later, when I approached the subject again, they basically just said, oh, that's right, we forgot. We forgot about that. Yeah, that'll be fine. (laughs) You know, but then once they said, yeah, that'll be fine, I thought, man, they have no idea what they're consenting to in terms of all of the time it's going to take for me to really film this. So that's when we started to have the more difficult discussions. And I think that's when they said, okay, we think we understand the import of what you're doing here and we'll agree to it. It wasn't as flippant as it sounds, but in the beginning it was. I think they just said yes kind of unwittingly. I know I speak for Mike, too, when I say this. You have have beautiful parents. They've they've done many things in their life. They're open and and uh, wonderful people it seems at least that's what you captured on film yeah. and I, and, yeah. and you caught them in situations that weren't always comfortable for them i know and and yet they they have a, a wonderful spirit between them and also like to thank your father for uh, the invention that tty machine the one the uh, yeah. telephone for the deaf the uh, typing machine i was flabbergasted Me when too. i heard that he had a part in, in inventing that. I've had friends and, and seen them and been with people who are using them, and it's, it's fabulous. I've, <laughs> my compliments to him oh, and to that, you. You know, I think the, the TTY inadvertently became a big part of the theme of the film because it was really the one other technology in my parents' life that has been so revolutionary. In a way, the TTY and the implant are really just kind of vehicles in the film for showing you who they are. And I think that, you know, one of the things that I did not set out to accomplish but that ended up happening in the film was that I really ended up making a love story about Mm -hmm. them. And yes, there's information in there about the cochlear implants, and yes, there's information in there about this other invention that my father was part of, the TTY. But really, both of those things, both of those pieces of technology are really just a vehicle for getting inside of their head and inside of their hearts and understanding how they function in the hearing world and how they get along and how they are in love and how they ran their family and all of that. Given that my father and mother were such photographers, We had all of this old family footage, and that's how I could really make a feature-length documentary out of it, because I had all of this supplementary contextual material I could talk about. That was very fine footage, too. I I really enjoyed it. There's one particular scene. Uh, Another invention of your father's was to have a microphone set up so that when his children cried, the lights would flash. And and I guess the doorbell rang, too, on occasion. There were a number of things that happened. Yeah, Yeah, the doorbell... 
the baby crying and the telephone ringing were all connected to the same light source. Uh, so <laughs> um, well, our house definitely was uh, always blinking. It must, have, off. it must have looked like a discotheque at some point. Do you remember all this uh, oh, sure. stuff going on? I'm here right now staying at my parents' place this week because I'm just on vacation. They, they still have a light that goes on and off when the doorbell rings. Uh, we're speaking with Irene Taylor Brodsky and her film, Here and Now, a documentary that will be part of DocuWeek here in Southern California as part of the IDA DocuWeek Film Festival. Both of your parents are deaf, and they both make a decision to go forward with this operation. What sort of led them to that point? Well, the implant's been around for a while. I mean, it's. Uh, and been I the believe it of- was first approved uh, sometime in the 80s, late 80s, my father, to hear him say it, he's told me, you know, it just never was functioning well enough for him to want it. It was constantly being revised and improved every year. And by the time they got their implants, there were something like 25 channels of audio available to them on the implant. But when the implant first came out, I believe it was just a single channel. So every time you develop the opportunity for more channels, you have opportunity for more surround hearing, I guess you would say, um, for more quality sound. So I think that for my father, the decision came when he felt like the technology was at a place where he was satisfied with it. That was the big thing, was my father being interested. My mother had always said for years, oh, I don't have time to do things like that. I don't have time to do something like that, because then I have to learn how to hear and I just don't have time for that kind of thing. I think that my dad was probably the instigator because he was curious about the technology and felt like it was um, finally the point where, you know, it was worth the effort and worth the risk, the medical risk, and going under the knife and having surgery like that. I don't think it ever would have occurred to them to do it by themselves. I think part of what made them want to do it was that they could do it together and they could try it together. So I think that was a big part of it. In fact, one part that does not make it into the film is that my father had a little bit of a medical complication just a couple of weeks before the surgery. Some routine tests had brought up some possible issues he had with his health that would have not allowed him to have the surgery. And it was a very stressful time because my mother had to make a decision whether to go through with the surgery, even if my father couldn't do it. Mm And she didn't want to do it. She didn't yeah. want to do it if he wasn't going to do it. That's another one of the chapters in their story that never made it into the film. You do an, a terrific job of documenting the psychological aspects of a change like this. There's just wonderful things that I think your mother said, and I believe it's something that only a deaf person could say, is you, you cannot hear apples grow. <laughs> There's, there's just there's a perspective that they had, and I think early in the film you said Ma- mom and dad are really good at being deaf people. They were born deaf. Yeah, well, my father was. We're not sure about my mother. Okay. But, now, you know, that line, they're just good at being deaf people. Uh-huh. I have to tell you, I thought of 20 different ways to say that line, and I just came up, or I stuck with, with that line, just saying my parents are good at being deaf. Lines like that you can only get away with when you're speaking as a narrator, as someone like their daughter. You know, I mean, you you could never write a respectable script and have a narrator say, (laughs) these two people are very good at being deaf. You know, like, (laughs) that's a ridiculous thing to say. But when you're their daughter, 
you can say things in a way that reflects that kind of childlike sensibility you still have about your parents. And, you know, it's like they're just good at it in that they're highly functioning, they're very comfortable in their own skin, and so they make it look very easy. You can see in their eyes they have a love for life. Well, and what I find remarkable is they knew each other at a very young age. They met each other very young. Yeah. It, was it? Uh, they were five when they went to that school. Uh, yeah, my mom was, my mom was five. My dad was three. Yeah, they were pretty young. There's one little part in there that just kind of whizzed by. Your mom worked for police as a lip reader. Uh, she she used to get calls, for, you know, once in a while for these special investigations that required uh, someone to lip read for whatever reason in police investigations. So, so she would do surveillance on other people? Yeah, she did that actually for 60 minutes. Uh, oh, really? <laughs> for for an investigation. It was an arson investigation, and they had erased the audio on the tape. They didn't have any audio. They brought in my mom to try to lip read what was being said, and somehow, you know, I don't know who they contacted, but she just had a name in the deaf community for being just a stellar lip reader. And so she was used in these really oddball situations. It's not like she had a company that contracted out for, you know, situations like these, because you don't find them very often. Right. Yeah. She was always a dependable lip reader. Who did the uh, the sound editing on this? The sound mix and sound design uh-huh. were done by someone in Portland named Michael Gansey. But the sound editing, effectively, I did uh, along with Jeff Bartz at HBO. Yeah. It's a fine job. I've got to say that there, there are points when the sound does drop off so that we get a feeling of what it's like or at least are forced yeah. to read lips or, or be in a situation where I think your dad at one point calls it quiet and then changes it to silence. There's a nice mix of sounds. So you're listening to birds and then there's nothing. I got a, a good feeling or at least a closer feeling of what it must be like to be deaf. How are your parents doing now? They're doing great. They're doing great. They're, um, they wear their implants more mm-hmm. than they did the first year. And I think it's because they're just more used to sound. That said, about an hour ago, there are about six or seven kids in this house this week, all <laughs> running around, making noise, yelling, screaming, playing, jumping rope inside. And my mother came up to me about an hour ago and said, I've got to turn this off. And she turned off her implant, and it's off. And I think it's off for the week. So, you know, at the same time, I think they still appreciate the quiet life, so to speak. So, You make an important point, too, in the film, where when someone who has effectively never had hearing, when they get one of these implants, it takes time for the brain to actually be able to sort of translate what's going on coming in, the, the sort of input that it's getting, that it takes the brain a little bit of time to be able to, to make the adjustments. Right. It's yeah. something that yeah. you as a, a hearing person that takes for granted. I believe that was part of your narration. You were talking about hearing is a lot about learning how not to hear. Right. Could you talk yeah. a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, when we hear, we filter out so many things. Right now I'm sitting here in one room and in the other room I can hear a couple of little kids talking and I'm choosing not to pay attention to that. Instead, I'm focusing on what you're saying. I think when a deaf person is first hearing with a cochlear implant after years of not hearing, their brain and also even just their personality does not have the, the experience to know how to shut things out. 
you know, and some of us, you know, I'm a mother, and I know that if I hear a baby crying, man, I can hear that baby with a bionic ear no matter where that child is. Right. And that just comes from partly my experience and partly maybe my personality. Right. So, um, but, you know, my husband can be sitting right next to me, and he doesn't <laughs> hear the baby cry. Is he, is he so there with you now? Is personality. <laughs> Who knows, you know. But in any case, it's, and he hears just like I do. Uh, yeah. What mom and dad are constantly learning to do is to tune out things like wind, things like air systems. When you're in a building, you know, air conditioning, engaging on and turning off, turning on, turning off. Um, when you're in the car, just the sound of the motor. And not knowing how to listen to what someone's saying and right. how to know to listen to the motor or listen to a car honking. So in a way, they don't know what to hone in on. Well, it's, sort of, it's, it's learning context is what it yeah, sounds like right, you're talking right. about. I want to thank you very much for, for being here. Um, we've been speaking with Irene Taylor Brodsky. The film is here and now. As I said, it'll be their opening night on DocuWeek at uh, IDA's putting this together, the International Documentary Association. That's August 17th here in, uh, in, in Los Angeles at the Arclight Theater. And best of luck to you on this film as it uh, travels ar- around the country. I assume you're going to be taking it around. Before we go, are you yeah. working on anything now? Yeah. Uh, I am. I'm working on a, uh, another documentary about the uh, largest public health initiative in history, which is the uh, worldwide effort to eradicate polio. All right. And uh, so we've been shooting in India and Afghanistan this spring, and uh, we're halfway through the edit. All right. Well, I look forward to that. Well, terrific. Well, thank <laughs> okay. you for joining us here on, on Film School. Irene Taylor Brodsky, okay. thank you. You bet. Bye-bye. To learn more about Film School, listen to more interviews, or subscribe to our podcast, visit our website at org slash filmschool.